Hello, I'm Matt Richter, and welcome to Truth in Learning. This is, I don't even know what episode we're at, but we have been on a long, long respite. Uh, well, we focused on the Learning and Development Conference 2020, but Will and I are back. In fact, hello, Will. How are you? I am doing great, Matt. This is so exciting, but we should tell people that we recorded two episodes and we lost them due to technical difficulties. I know. So, after running an entire conference digitally, we totally <laughs> messed up the recordings for the two podcasts. So, awesome. hey, third time's a charm, right? This is That's right. our we've third attempt. Yeah, you know, we're in the bubble, but we've had a preseason that yep. no, one, no one came to watch. And to be perfectly honest, you, you weren't really uh, cognitively prepared for that episode anyway. I, you couldn't even answer some of my basic questions. It's true. Um, yeah. I'm kind of glad that those, you know, were destroyed in the fire. I know. I think you would have been publicly humiliated. It would have been an embarrassment. I, I mean, oh. Even with your brilliant editing, you know, I don't think you could have. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't make you look better. It was just awful. Just horrible. I mean, I can't even suck up to you today. They were that bad. So, so folks, you're, in, you're, in, you're way better off now. Uh, but today, today, we are going to just chat for a few minutes about the conference, the Learning and Development Conference uh, that we co-hosted over the summer. But for the majority of this episode, Will and I are going to talk about smiley sheets. In fact, we're going to delve into should you, shouldn't you use them. We're going to delve into how you can go about using them. We're going to look at the value of using them. Uh, in fact, is there any value? And of course, we're going to refer quite a bit to the research and work that Will has done over the last several years on the topic. In, in fact, more in fact, uh, Will has rewritten his original book on smiley sheets and the second edition is coming out soon. So in, uh, I was going to say, in fact, one more time, but I'm not going to do that to you also. Uh, so Will, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation about smiley sheets because I hate them. Yeah, I was going to say you hate them. I do hate them. Yeah. Well, you know, I've tried to convince you, Matt, that uh, feedback is good for you and good for your soul. But, you know, you, you have yet to repent on this. Well, you keep conflating uh, getting good feedback with the notion of getting feedback from smiley sheets. And uh, I do not think they're the same thing. Uh, I, in fact, just asked you for feedback on an article I wrote. So I love feedback. I just like it when it's appropriately given. Well, so there. <laughs> oh, okay. Are you going to do better this episode? I am going to be brilliant as always. Okay. All right. Well, f folks, feel free to give, uh, uh, what's your name? Will. Yeah. Give Will a rating out of 10 points as to whether he was actually brilliant during this episode. Uh, so we'll, we'll put a smiley sheet on the, uh, the episode notes for you uh, to use. Anyway, Will, we do have some sad news. And um, in all seriousness, uh, we both wanted to take a couple minutes. Uh, as of this recording, uh, the, the world of performance improvement and learning and development lost one of the greats. Uh, Roger Kaufman passed away yesterday as we record this. And uh, uh, you knew him uh, quite well, actually. And I thought you should say a few words 
before we we move on to the rest of the episode well uh yeah uh roger you know uh has been in our field for many 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 years and uh you know a brilliant performance improvement practitioner uh, but also he gave us uh, a, a, an idea that is not usually voiced in our field. And that idea, he called it mega. Uh, but the idea basically was that uh, when we think about our learning and or our performance improvement work, we should not just think about the benefits that we create for the organization or for the business, but we should look beyond that and look at you know, the effect on society, community, uh, et cetera. Uh, he called it mega. He has a, a great approach to that. And uh, that, you know, that really resonated with me. And, and one of the things that uh, was sadly ironic is that uh, just uh, this year, uh, the Kaufman Center was founded and um, uh, this is really um, uh, an honor to Roger um, and uh, the person responsible for this really, as Roger told it, was um, uh, Mariano Bernardes. And uh, they had a first meeting of this just a couple weeks ago. And um, people from around the world were there to get this thing going. We will leave in our show notes the uh, URL so you can go visit that. Um, highly recommended. Roger was a, you know, very good person, always, you know, keeping in contact, always sharing his ideas, always helping people out. Um, did a lot of projects on things that most of us don't think to do. Um, fighting poverty and crime and and not just in his home country, the United States, but all over the world. So I, uh, I'm going to miss Roger uh, myself, and I think the uh, learning and performance field will miss him as well. And we were very happy to have him on this show uh, in the spring. Uh, we'll interviewed him uh, in our coaching as what episode, and uh, they um, amongst many topics they they went over. Uh, Mega was one of them. So uh, he'll be missed. Great. And we'll put that note. Uh, we'll tell you what episode that is uh, in our show notes as well. So we had a conference this past summer. We did have a conference. The Learning and Development 2020. So how did it go? Uh, well, it was brilliant. That's called, by the way, a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> so... I know that, that that that's hubris. Will we we shouldn't call something we worked on brilliant. We should let other people do that, but we shouldn't do it. Well, we're, I'm just I'm you know I we I looked at their learner surveys, their conference surveys, and uh, you know their smile sheets, Matt, and they said it was brilliant. I know, but I wrote most of those. I filled them <laughs> out. <laughs> so um, it went. It was great. Uh, I uh, I can't think of, of it having gone better. We had, we, I think we expected about 50 people. 50 people is what we hoped for. In fact, we said, if we don't get 50 people, we were going to cancel. And 
we ended up with more than 300 people um, joining the conference. And we had folks, participants from six continents. Our instructor base covered six continents. I'm not sure if we had anyone from Africa instructing, but we had folks from five of the seven continents. And uh, what was kind of cool was not one continent dominated uh, the participant pool. So yeah, we did have more people from North America, but it was a mild uh, plurality. So we, we were pretty well covered across the seven seas, which was pretty spectacular. Um, the conference covered multiple time zones and it had both asynchronous and synchronous events. So people could go through and take uh, as many of the 25 plus asynchronous workshops that uh, we had over the six week period, or and, not or, but and they could attend uh, any of the 60 plus live sessions we had scheduled. Um, many of the sessions were delivered twice, which is why we had that many. So it, it was pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, we had Julie Dirksen, we had um, Lori Niles Hoffman, we had Kate Cram, we had Aaron Pradden from Australia, we had um, Tiagi, we had um, Miriam Nealon, Paul Kirshner, Clark Quinn, Patty Shank, Connie Malamud, and I'm forgetting to name a bunch of oh, people. Oh, Monty well. Manns, Karen Hyder, uh, Megan Torrance, <laughs> we just had. Uh... Uh, and we're probably apologize for missing anybody. We didn't bring our list with us, but a little brilliant folks, brilliant. Folks. And uh, yeah, we had debates, we had panel discussions, we had um, interviews, we had uh, all sorts of things. And, and uh, the key thing was at the end, the nice compliment to me, the best evaluation was a large number of people wanted to know where do we pay to attend next summer? And so, <laughs> That, that was kind of nice. Well, they also had said, hey, Matt, hey, Will, look, uh, you guys must continue this community somehow, somewhere. somewhere. So we're, so we're going to do that. Yes, we are. And what, what did we just, what did we land on? We're going to, we're going to call the name? it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess we, fi we figured that out since the last time we, we practiced this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it is the, um, uh, Learning Development Accelerator. Or LDA. LDA. To go with the LDC. So, and so we're announcing that. This is, this is where we're announcing LDA. Well, it depends and on how long we take to edit this. That's true. That's true. Because it could take four months. But coming to your neighborhood this fall is LDA. And we're going to open up a website within the next month. We're going to start offering programming and stuff by December. And uh, we're going to start announcing and talking about next summer's LDC by January. But the headline is we want to foster a community of research-aligned uh, training and development, learning and development professionals across the global uh, community. And our goal is to find ways to support this global community uh, we are not going to be vendor driven. That doesn't mean vendors are not welcome, but it means that we are about the participant base. We are focused on how to help people in their careers, how to provide learning opportunities, and to make sure that as we establish this network, uh, 
that everything we do is aligned with, with the current thinking and the research. Uh, and so that, that's part of what makes us excited. Right now, wow. LDA is going to be all digital. Uh, we have found that we really like this environment. It's going to be 10 fingers. Will just held up ten these fingers are, to me. These are these are digits, digits, man. Oh, I was making a little like Will was holding up visual joke in a podcast format. Yeah, you can't you can't do it. Yeah, no visual jokes on a podcast. <clears throat> so just for your benefit. Ah, okay. Yeah. You should do this. I'm pointing at Will, and now making a face. So, so. Anyway, more to come, more to come. We're putting together an executive board of research-aligned folks to help ensure that we stay on track and to help us uh, construct the vision for the organization. And we're putting together an advisory board of folks from around the world uh, to make sure that uh, we're as cutting edge and, and um, uh, aligned with everything that's happening uh, universally. So uh, we're very excited. We're, we are unbelievably thrilled and uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but terrified at the same time. <laughs> well, well, the good news is the wonderful Ashley Sinclair has designed our look and feel again. Yes. So, uh, so I think people were very impressed with uh, what she had done for, for the conference. She has hit a home run again, baseball analogy, probably unwarranted, but uh, <laughs> she's, she's done an amazing not, not job true. so far. So on, on the look and feel, so we're excited. So we now that brings us to smiley sheets. Okay. Will, smiley sheets is a pretty uh, divisive derivative insulting name for a technique of evaluation. Uh, what are smiley sheets and, and why are they still around? Well, uh, there's a lot of names for them, right? Smiley sheets, happy, happy sheets. sheets. Smi I, I called them smile sheets in my first book. Um, reaction forms, response forms, uh, level ones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they're basically and this is the term I'm using now, learner surveys. You're surveying your learners. And uh, what they are, are survey questions delivered to your learners, typically soon after learning or during learning, uh, sometimes after the delay. And uh, the idea is, well, the idea is unclear because in the past, uh, smile sheets were uh, deserving of their <laughs> derogatory terminology uh, in that we just asked people about satisfaction and the reputation of the course and things that weren't that valuable and we asked questions that weren't designed that well but they're basically you asked me what they are basically the questions asked of learners to get some feedback on the learning event how well did they go and uh so when you say that they've traditionally not been well regarded, what's changed? You seem to be okay with them now. So why are you why are you all of a sudden uh, aligned with well, the usage? Well, let's not overstate the case here. I am uh, skeptical 
Uh, I do not believe that they are um, good enough information to validate our success. Um, but I do think they can provide us with some information if they're well designed. I looked at the uh, research on smile sheets a few years ago, and there were several meta analyses done and looking at over 150 scientific studies that tried to correlate uh, smile sheet results with learning results. And uh, what statisticians tell us if, is anything below 0.30 is a weak correlation. Well, the correlation for two meta-analyses were 0.09, so virtually no correlation at all. And so when I saw that, I said, whoa, wait a minute. My first gut response was, uh, you know what, we should, we should just not look at these. These are not valuable. And then I thought a, bit, a little bit more and said, well, wait a minute. These things are a tradition. We're going to continue using them. And in some sense, it's respectful to ask our learners what they think. So then the question became, can we make them better? Can we make them more effective? And I've, obviously, I wrote a book on it. So my answer to that is, yes, we can make them better and more effective. So when, when I look at a smiley sheet, a lot of times the questions center around um, the environment or the learning objectives were clear to me or... Uh, I feel like I learned something. Something is a direct quotation. Um, they're, they're pretty vague. Uh, other times, uh, sometimes the questions will have two ideas with them or more. Like, uh, um, I was comfortable in the room, and therefore I learned something, which becomes problematic in of itself. So, so what, what are you proposing that we do to make these more effective and useful? Well, let's first look at the problems that you're, you know, uh, recounting here. So <clears throat> one of the problems is that we use biased questions. We use leading questions, right? We say, uh, and we use, usually use a Likert-like scale. And, and by the way, um, I used to call them Likert, but I learned that it's called Likert. Uh, and I did, somebody told me once, hey, Will, you're pronouncing it wrong. I said, oh, what? So I, I, I went around, did some research, and found out that the daughter of Likert said it's Likert. So that was, you know, that was good enough evidence for me. So <laughs> what we do is we give a statement, and then we ask people on a Likert scale, do you strongly agree with the statement? Do you agree with it? Are you neutral? Do you disagree? Or do you strongly disagree? And uh, then what we do is we you know, put a number onto that. So a strongly agree is a five, agree is a four, et cetera. And then we take an average. Now, um, but here's the problem. Here's one of the problems is we give people a statement. It's almost like a leading statement. The statement we read, um, I learned information, uh, valuable information that I can use in my work. Well, if you're a learner, doesn't that sort of push you uh, toward the more positive response? Well, absolutely. And that's why most smile sheet ratings are between like a 3.8 and a 4.5 on average. You know, they're very high. So, um, and when we have that kind of grouping, there's not much variation. And if there's not much variation, we can't tell a good result from a bad result. So that's, that's one problem that we have. Um, well, that's really two problems I'm talking about. One is that we give a statement and it's sort of a leading statement. It's a biasing statement. It's sort of a asking for a positive response. And the second problem is the Likert-like scale itself. It, it is giving people fuzzy adjectives um, and asking them to make a decision. And when you have that, uh, when it's fuzzy like that, people tend to be biased. 
Um, and uh, they tend to overinflate. Hey, that- hey, Will, can, can we take a step back, though, and talk about the Likert scale? Um, a lot of people think of a Likert scale as any numbering system that's a range. And that's not quite what it is, right? So, for example, I might have uh, option one is uh, uh, a sentence that describes a condition. Option two is a different condition. Three is another condition. That's not a Likert scale. A Likert scale might be never, sometimes, uh, uh, never, rarely, sometimes, that kind of Well, thing, uh, the, right? the, the official Likert scale uh, was, uh, you know, strongly agree, agree, et cetera. But what people tend to do is have things that are like that. So everybody calls them now Likert-like scales. So, yeah. Uh, if you have concrete answer choices, um, with more words in them that are more descriptive or uh, concrete, then those are not Likert scales. Great, excellent. So that's one of your your proposals is dump the Likert scales. Dump the Likert scales. Also, uh, what's even fuzzier than strongly agree and agree is just numbers. Have people pick out a number from one to five or one to seven or zero to 11, uh, whatever. Those are even fuzzier than that. And see, here, here's the problem with that. Uh, when we ask, we're hoping that our learners, the people who are responding to the surveys, we are hoping that they're going to make good decisions on their smile sheet, that we're going to get sort of data that is more precise rather than less precise. And when we give them fuzzy things to choose from, we are not supporting them in that decision making. So we're, they're making, uh, you know, sort of fuzzy decisions. And that has several repercussions of its own. First of all, the bad, bad, fuzzy data. Number two, people are less motivated. People see all these liquor-like scales down the smile sheet and their eyes glaze over. They know that we are not getting that information that's that valuable. Um, they're less motivated. They give less attention to it. Um, and then, of course, the data becomes bad. And number three, <laughs> the data we get when we take an average of the results uh, that's problematic in, in and of itself. So typically we might ask, let's just say we ask 10 questions on our smile sheet. But then the way we report this out is we pick one question as sort of our overall question. We take an average. And when you take an average, you're missing out on how many, how widely dispersed the answer choices were. You know, uh, maybe a lot of people hated it. Maybe a lot of people liked it, but it averaged out in the middle. Okay, but we, when we get an average, we don't see that. Um, it could be skewed to the left, skewed to the right. Uh, so there's a lot of issues with that. And uh, then we just take one answer or one question and we pose that out. My course is a 4.1. And so you can see all, every step of that process, we're losing information. You're such so again, a scientist. There is no consultant out there that would be happy with 4.1. I've never seen a 4.1 promoted all consultants are 4.7 or higher when oh, they market course. their courses, <laughs> so, which begs a different problem, right? Well, they're all on the 10 point scale. So that's not, so nah, they're not though. <laughs> they're not. If, if you are looking at a scale of five and the majority of your courses are 4.7 or higher, what does this imply to you? Problematically. This is problematic on so many levels, but right. what are some of the most important reasons why high numbers consistently are an issue? 
Well, there's this thing in the research called a ceiling effect. And if everybody's at the ceiling, uh, then there's no differentiation. So you don't know whether that's, you know, a good thing or a bad thing. Also, if, every, if the numbers are really high, it means you don't have that much of a spread. So it could be that you have fantastic results, but you don't know that for sure um, because over time you get these results all the time. And then that doesn't really tell you anything. It doesn't differentiate between what's good and what's bad. And uh, we're trying to get information so we can make decisions. And if we can't make decisions because the answer is always the same, then uh, we really haven't learned anything. So why do I want this info? I mean, it sounds to me like our learners, well, according to Miriam Nealon and Paul Kirshner, learners are poor judges of their own quality of learning. Learners are not qualified to tell us whether they learn. I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. I, I don't okay. know what Correct I don't that. know what they would say, but I think learners know uh, some things about their learning, and like some what, things though? they don't know. Well, I, I, I uh, the researchers, you know, get all giddy and and highlight the things when they don't know. So we know that learners are overly optimistic about their okay. ability to remember. Um, you know, uh, there's the Dunning Kruger effect. Right. Um, Which you know, is? Well, that people, uh, everybody thinks they're above average, basically. <laughs> and yeah. the, people that, the people that know the least rate themselves the highest, right? Yeah. You so, can see this if you ask a group of people uh, to rate uh, how many people in the room are average drivers or worse. <laughs> yeah, right, and right, right. How many of you are average drivers or worse and you get zero. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so we have to be, you know, so learners don't always know their own learning. I don't think we as a field yet know when learners are good at giving us feedback and bad at giving us feedback. But what it does tell us is that we have to support them in their decision making. So they give us good data. And one, one way we do that is to create better questions. Don't use Likert scales, don't use numeric scales. Uh, but the other thing we have to do is uh, make sure there's no bias or you know, eliminate bias in a question. So, for example, um, if we ask a question, uh, you know, we might say, you know, something like, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, which of the following, and we have to put in, if any, were a benefit to the program, you know, a benefit of the program to you. And the reason we need to insert if any is because if you don't, you now have a question with two questions. No, no, if we don't, if we don't, well, maybe, but what, what I'm concerned about is if we don't put if any, we're not giving people permission to say, I didn't see any benefits. So you're mitigating for that, but there's also a problem that I'm, uh, I have to first answer the question, were there any? Right, 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 right. Right? right. And yeah, then yeah. the second question is to what degree or quality? Right. Well, in fact, one of the one of the one of the well-known learning measurement vendors out there has a question that asks something like this: um, What were the uh, what were the major outcomes of the program? And the outcomes are increased revenue, increased innovation, lower costs. So this is my how do how do the learners know? Well, first of all, how do they know? But also, every one of them is a positive thing. So if the learners even answer the question, the results <laughs> look like you've created great benefits, which is so much BS. I can't believe it. I can't believe 
um, the people fall for this stuff or, you know, it's, it's almost underhand, you know, either you are completely blind and you just, okay, yeah, that's great. Or you're like, ah, oh, devious. And you're thinking, oh, we can prove that we've got benefits by giving people a list of benefits and having them choose between them. Well, there, there's, do you know the, this uh, riddle? Um, how, uh, what is the uh, average number of arms that people have in the United States? Let's say you take a, a person, what is the average number of arms that a person has? Oh, all right. Should I answer this? I'd say 1.9. Yeah, right. So you you did it right. You know what the the normal answer is we get? What? People say two. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. And well, that's this the, is that's the mode, right? But the, exactly, but this is this is illustrative of your point that we either are completely forgetting the fact that there are people out there who have the negative, you know, a one-armed person, or there are indeed people who are born with no arms. So that could be the problem that you're forgetting that, mm-hmm. or you just have a complete misunderstanding of what the word average means. Right. 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 And so either one is problematic. And, and so you go into that question, totally misunderstanding the intent behind the question and you misunderstand what you're intended to answer right? So it's well, a riddle. Absolutely. But it's... absolutely. But, you know, let me, you're reminding me to, to say something. And that is, uh, you know, there's no perfect measurement tool. Like if I'm measuring miles. LTEM? LTEM is not a good evaluation? Well, that is perfection. Yeah, okay. At okay. its best. But other than that. <laughs> but look, even if you're measuring like miles per hour in a car or you're, you're taking your temperature, you see if you're sick and have a fever, um, you know, those tools are off by a little bit, right? There's some measurement error in all of those. And one thing we ought to realize is that when it comes to human beings, the, our measurement tools are even fuzzier. So we're never getting perfect information, but we are getting information that's usable, um, that's a reasonable proxy for the kind of things we want to aim to um, go after. So you know, some people say, oh, well, you know, people are subjective, they're biased, you know, we're not getting good information, we're not going to ask them anything. Well, that, that's, not, that's not realistic, that's not practical. Um, we can get good information. I, I was a, you know, pretty pathetic trainer when I started out, and I got good feedback over the years on my smile sheets to say, hey, Will, this was terrible, you got to do this better, keep doing this. Um, you know, so they can, they can provide some use if they're well done. I had a guy who uh, used to tell me, all right, here's how you ensure you get the best smiley sheet results. So at the beginning of the workshop, make sure you, you uh, through an activity or somehow get the goals up on the wall, right? So make sure you have the course objectives up on the wall. And the more you can get those objectives to come from the participants, the better. So you make sure you align what we're doing with what they want, right? And, and over the day, you know, narrate their objectives in the f- terms of yours, right? Yeah. Before lunch, go to the, that chart with all the objectives and say, rate me now on where we're at. Have we hit this one already? Or are we in process? And, and target their sense of progress. Right. Right, for each one. Okay, now at the end of the day, you go back to that chart. So we hit this one, right? We hit that one, right? And if you didn't hit it, skip it. 
just jump over to the next one. They won't <laughs> notice. Oh, really? Yeah. And so and, this, is a, this is a manipulation tool to get people yeah. to feel uh, like you're... This guy was adamant that this is the way to ensure that you get all fives with a couple fours on a five-point uh, scale. Yeah. And well, he, it worked. I mean, he was right. It worked well, every time. You know, I worked for a training company, and we brought in an outside firm in to tell us how to train, and we wanted to uh-huh. you know, do train the train. Hire us. Yeah, well, you guys were too expensive. You know, you guys were creaming yeah. the crop, and we couldn't afford it. That's so, so true. That is so true. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we were taught how to get applause. There's a little maneuver you can use yeah. with your voice. You can get applause, at a, you know, when, I, when you want it at the end. We were told, do this right before you hand out the smile sheets. And the thinking was, okay, some people really loved you and they're going to clap. Other people might be not be sure, but when they hear everybody else clapping, you know, they're going to think, oh, this is right. better than I thought. I better mark it high. So, yeah. Well, we do, we do Tiagi's uh, jolt at the end, right before the evals. So, and you hate this. You, you, every time I do this, you get so angry. In fact, you're the only one with the angry face in this moment. But you get everyone to, everyone stand up. Great, good, close your eyes, good. Everyone open your eyes, take your hand, make a fist, put it out in front of you. Now bring it to your chest and tap three times. Turn 360 degrees, great, have a seat. Now, when someone asks you, how, how is this workshop with Matt and Tiagi or Matt and Will, or, right, now you can honestly, you can authentically, you can genuinely say it brought you to your feet. It opened your eyes, it touched your heart, and it turned you all around. Now fill out the eval. <laughs> and it works every time. Oh, my God. Yeah, I just, you're right, I can't think. <laughs> you, uh, you get so upset. <laughs> it's, oh, oh. All right, I'm just not even going to say anything about it. Uh. Which begs the question, then, how reliable is your format at mitigating some of these manipulative aspects of, of getting feedback from these learners who are self-reporting? Well, what I've tried to do is to minimize bias uh, and to uh, you know, minimize some of the problems on a traditional smile sheet. And I'm not saying that what I'm doing is perfect, um, but I have heard from many, many organizations and people out there that uh, they are getting much more effective uh, data, uh, data that's richer, uh, data that's uh, more valuable to them in making improvements. Um, so uh, I'm pretty confident. Okay. So can you, you've told us that we're dumping the Likert scale. You told us we're focusing on specifics. Likert. Lick what? <laughs> You said Likert. Uh, sorry. I do. I do. It's, it's ingrained. I, I, I me too. I say it. Yeah. Um, and by the way, now I'm going around correcting people just to annoy them when they say it. it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's liquor. Yeah. I'll interrupt them too. And just to throw them off, just like you do. Because uh, <laughs> you know, that's what's more important that they get the pronunciation right. It's much more important to get the pronunciation right. And that's you know, right. I, I think there's, you know, you could use, you know, there's different learning styles, and some people are really you know, uh, some people are oral See, learners. I and, can tell, and, and you can lick and lick liquor. Lick, I can tell you're being sarcastic using my <laughs> NLP skills. 
(laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, 70% of what we do, you know, we should do in the moment versus, you know, focusing on 20%. (laughs) And and, and, and 10% of us are are half brained. Well, as long as we can put it all into a pyramid, we'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) But there are four styles that we should all look at. Um, oh, and there's you know, colors. And, yeah. yeah. I feel true when I identify my proper color. You, you know, there's one other thing I don't want to forget to tell you about uh, learner surveys. One of the things we're trying to do with them is to uh, gather feedback so we can make better decisions. But why are we doing that? We're, we're trying to make better decisions so we can take better actions. But there's also another trick with uh, smile sheets. I call it stealth messaging. And that we can use our learner surveys to send messages to ourselves as stakeholders and to other stakeholders around us. So, for example, if we ask a question uh, on, you know, uh, we, we ask the learner something like, um, you know, do you, w- what after training or what support do you expect to get after this training? And we say we have choices like, you know, my manager will give me resources or time to do this or whatever. I'll have a coach to mentor me. I'll get some reminders sent to me. I'll get to use the job aids that were delivered. Um, A question like this, it not only gives us data about whether the learners think they're going to get these kind of supports, um, which is valuable, but it also sends a message. It sends a message to the learners that, hell, maybe these things are important. I should make sure that I you know, use that job aid. It sends a message to the trainers. Oh my gosh, um, you know, maybe I should find coaches for people or maybe I should uh, connect with the learner's managers. Uh, you might have a question in there about uh, my, a choice in there about uh, my instructor will contact me after the course and I'll you know, be able to answer my questions. And so that sends, sends a stealth message to the instructor saying, hey, uh, wow, maybe I should be in touch with people. Um, also, the which overall... Is, which is more important than targeting your instructors to focus on uh, Will recited the learning objectives at the beginning of class. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Which, which we've seen in some of these more traditional forms. So, so what I love about that is you're using the smiley sheet less as an evaluative tool in that moment that purpose now is to actually help create some boundaries around expectations for the facilitator. Well, well, for everybody, really, if you think about it, that question also sends a message to the business stakeholders that, oh my gosh, we, when we ask for training, we should also ask for training follow-up plan. And we should also make sure that the managers are the learner's managers are uh, rewarded, acknowledged, uh, expected to help support, not all trainings, because you don't want the manager micromanaging everything, but on some really important strategic things, you want those managers involved to support their learners, uh, to give them time, to give them resources, to give them coaching, to give them feedback, et cetera. Uh, that sends a message to the whole organization. So, All right, so, so let's dive into some examples of questions. Sure. Okay, so uh, question 101 in the, the new version of the book. I actually, be, could you give me an example of a bad question that then correlated with an intent 
to one of your newer questions, your, your corrected questions? Well, I haven't prepared that, but uh, <laughs> I Well, you, you wrote the book. I would assume you can do this on the fly. Oh. Well, Ooh, yeah. you know me, I need to prepare, you know. Um, uh, Didn't you read your book? <laughs> I've read it a thousand times. All right, let me, let me, let me, I'll ask you this, this question here. Okay. Um, um, I learned new knowledge and skills from this training. Uh, strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree, neutral, slightly agree, agree, strongly agree. Okay, so that's what's that? That's getting at knowledge. That's, well, and it's it's getting at my perception that I learned something or didn't learn something. Well, yeah, these are yeah. in some sense all perceptions. Okay, so uh, you want a question that's related to that? All right, let me see. Uh, I've got a, I've got to search through the new draft here. And Thank folks, you. if you send Will an email with uh, uh, some proof that you listened to this episode, he will give you a free copy of the book. <laughs> what do you mean? Now, Matt, you have been a big proselytizer that we shouldn't give things away for free. That I'm not. I'm giving provide... stuff of yours away for free. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm all in favor of that. And, you know, for, uh, for all the people I give books to, I'm going to put your names in a drawing, and we're going to give a house in near Albany, New York, away for free. Oh, and it needs a new roof and a new garage. <laughs> it's yours. Come take it. I'll hand it to you. All right. So here's These a question. are yours. Here's a question commensurate with that. Um, now that you've completed the learning experience, how well do you feel you understand the concepts taught? Choose one. I am still at least somewhat confused about the concepts. I am now somewhat familiar with the concepts. I have a solid understanding of the concepts. I am fully ready to use the concepts in my work. I have an expert level ability to use the concepts. Now, this is absolutely better than what you shared as the uh, old version. Absolutely, I can see the difference. And at the same time, I still have to say to myself, what qualifies this guy to be able to evaluate that? The learner? Yeah. Well, they, sh they, sh they have a pretty good sense in their head at that moment, whether they're confused or not, right? Like our listeners, when they listen to us, they know that they are confused when we, you and I talk. But right? do they? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, mean, they a, I mean, yeah. we, we have uh, proof on our learning science quiz show when we do it. We tell people, ask, we show them 12 times that the answer is false. We show them 12 times that each of these questions uh, present a different type of neuromyth. And they still, many of them will answer that these are truisms, even though we keep telling them they're false. We will tell them they've got them all wrong. We will highlight to them why they got them wrong. And then we will follow up immediately with another neuromyth that they then say, oh, yeah, that's true which implies that objectively they're still confused even though they would tell us they're not. Well, well, uh, look, there is that, but look, you know, when you, we're just giving them a little, we're not even teaching them anything. We're just giving them uh, a quick question. So that's not commensurate with a training course where you're going through things, you're giving people practice, you're having them, uh, you know, wrangle with it, reflect on it, discuss it. So, okay, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. That's um, a fair distinction. 
I mean, let's, let's be real here. These are all subjective opinions. And we as, uh, you know, uh, learning evaluators have to understand that there could be uh, mistaken opinions, there could be biases. One of the things we wanna do is to make sure that the questions are good, but that we also ask multiple questions. We sort of triangulate the data, we get at different aspects of it. Um, also, I'm a big proponent of uh, open-ended questions as well. And there's also this kind of question I use as a hybrid question, there's really two questions. One, you asked a forced choice question, like a multiple choice question or a checkbox question. And then right after it, you ask an open-ended question. So you say something, you know, you give the forced choice question and you might say something like, okay, now in your own words, tell us uh, what you really think about, you know, your level of understanding or whatever. Okay. So you've stipulated that, that one big value is being able to target objectives for the learner post-session, target objectives for the facilitator, both pre and post-session, maybe even target objectives for stakeholders to understand what they should expect from their learners. That I, I buy that. But from an evaluation standpoint, you haven't sold me that these are ultimately all that different from the traditional liquor uh, approaches because in the end, they're still subjective. They're still uh, wishy-washy on whether the learner can truly identify confusion or not. It's still wishy-washy. It's just a it's just a dressed-up question with lipstick on it. Well, let's say that we let, let's think about the alternatives. Nothing. First of all, I, dis, I disagree with you. What, what, okay. The alternatives are yeah. The, one alternative is that we don't ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, I think it's even more likely that the uh, that the trainer and the instructional designer, if they are sitting in the back of the room, are going to think everything went well. Well, but it may have gone well and the participants didn't like it, or it may have been a very difficult topic. And until they get back on the job, they won't be able to practice in the moment or in the workflow or uh, before they do some space learning, space uh, repetition. So maybe they don't have the ability to assess whether they are, are confused or still confused or not. Especially if the design employs some of the learning principles you've espoused over the years. Well, I, I, I disagree. You know, I, in, in the book, I talk about the four pillars of training effectiveness, which is a, a simplification, but aiming at focusing on four things to get a sense of whether the, the learning was effective. One is whether the learners understand. The question I just read off focuses on that. But wait, uh, hold on, hold on. Let's do one at a time. I can evaluate if a learner understands by doing an activity that gets the learner to demonstrate comprehension. Absolutely. And, and, and that would absolutely be better. But uh, let's, uh, first of all, you know, most learning is only evaluated on smile sheets. And that's not acceptable, but if that's what we do, we should at least get some idea of whether the learners feel Well, we'll, we'll tackle that in a second. Let's, let's get All through right. your four. But okay. my alternative to the first one, to understanding is to actually run some kind of activity 
that gets the participant to demonstrate understanding rather than rate his or her own understanding. That's, that's fine. Okay. Uh, no, number, number two is, um, uh, are, are the learners, uh, have they gotten the supports they need to have remembered the materials? In the class or post in class, session? In the class, in the class. So the answer is simple. Either I've provided them with job aids, lists, uh, references, manuals, slides, videos, or any of that, or I didn't? Uh, uh, well, not true. Um, I mean, those are, those are helpful, but the things that we want to look for for remembering are, uh, have you given people, have you, have you talked about the content in context, in the real world work job context? Have you given them realistic practice on it? Have you given them spaced repetitions? Right, so those are design issues, not something I can ask them about. You can ask them about it. But why would what, I? What, I've either done it or didn't. Well, uh, we fool ourselves. Uh, we, we were running out of time and we decide, well, I'm not gonna give that practice exercise. Um, but also, oftentimes we have a, uh, a cadre of subject matter experts or trainers who work for us, or we hire outside vendors. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, uh, we're not always in the classroom 100% of the time. We also want to send messages to uh, them, uh, to our vendors, to our hired trainers, that these are the kind of things we're looking for. Okay, I'll give, so you, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, there's a European company, they do innovative packaging, and um, the, uh, the, my client contact there, who is there developing a new evaluation, a new survey for them, added a, added a survey option about using Yammer to support. And he was, wanted to get feedback before he rolled this out to his uh, trainers, to his subject matter experts. And one of, the, one of the trainers started yelling at him, why are you telling me to use Yammer? That's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, blah, 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 blah. And, and um, you know, he's gone over the, the learner survey and this is one of the choices. And then the next day, the, this person wrote back and said, you know what, I've reconsidered this. I actually think Yammer is a really good idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I was an idiot, I apologize. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna use it in my, in my work. I, I love that story, but that story was not determined or, uh, or resolved based on the smiley sheet. It was on the smile sheet because the person looked at the smile sheet. No, I understand that, but whether the person used it or not, well, there's two effects. There's the pre-effect. No, I, I understand the targeting by telling people. What about people, the, the data when you get it back? But if, if I am sold on the instructional design, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a trainer, that can be evaluated more efficiently by other avenues than asking participants who may not be aware what that was or whether something was missing. I can easily make my participants feel like I've provided enough support for them and they still won't be able to do it back on the job. Not intentionally even, I can just screw it up, but they won't, they're not aware of the methodologies I'm using instructively. How do they know? Well, the, the kind of questions we ask uh, and the kind of choices we give them are things that they can know. They can have a pretty good idea about. Now, again, um, this is not the only way to get this information. 
If we right. want to ask about like remembering, the best way to measure that is to give somebody some kind of assessment a week later to see if they remembered it. Great, let's do that. But are we, well, but we don't do it. So because saying, we, we, we don't tell do people, we don't tell organizations, we, we are now writing books to say, you're gonna do this anyway, so let's make it a marginally better thing instead of telling them, hey, this is ridiculous, why don't you do this a week later and focus on remembering? Well, we, we've been telling them this for 40 years and they're no. not doing it. One person's been telling them. You have been telling you, them. Look. Now we have look, a podcast. Well, here, here's the other thing. You know, one of, the, one of the things we think that we can do, because we're learning professionals, is we think we can always educate people, that we can always persuade people. And we know that that doesn't work that well because we've been talking about this and we're still the order takers that we don't want to be, right? So I wish and, people had done a smiley sheet on our train the trainer programs then. Well, if people use a well-designed smile sheet, it is another tool in the toolkit to persuade because it, it's there every time. It's sending a message that there should be, uh, there should be, um, you know, practical practice. But you are practice. acknowledging there are better ways to get this information. We are settling. Well, let's, let's go to LTEM, right? LTEM is the learning transfer evaluation model. It's got eight tiers in it. I put uh, the learner surveys at tier three. Above tier three are knowledge, where we ask people, um, you know, we, we assess them on their knowledge. Uh, above that are decision-making competence. We mm -hmm. assess them on whether they can make realistic, real-world decisions. And above that is task competence, where they right. not only can make decisions, but they can actually you know, implement things. So clearly, uh, my overall message is, yeah, these things aren't good enough. But when well, we're talking I'll about how to improve a smile sheet, these are questions that we can ask to give us better I information. I guess what I'm pushing back on is the notion that I know you don't agree with the concept of a smiley sheet in general because you do put it so low. And by the way, if you want to use LTEM, which I love, but what are the first two levels on LTEM? Uh, the first level is attendance, you know. Or right. Complete, right. So this is a bullshit level and, and intended to be. So we could throw that one out. What's the second one? Uh, participation. Okay, so you, you laugh at my joke and you keep your eyes open and, and, and now and then make well, you comments. Feel, you, you, know, you make comments on yeah. like an online bulletin board, but that so doesn't the, mean you've learned this is, this is a total bullshit one as well. The first real level you get at is the smiley sheet. So in, in ultimate practical levels, sheet is really the bottom of the barrel. Right? Well, attendance is the bottom of the barrel, which is why I put it there. Yeah, uh, because I, again, see, you know, it's about the messaging thing. We need to have models and methods to send the right messages. Point the, is that these are the lowest of the low. These are these are insufficient. And I guess in, what I'm in, arguing, in, yeah. I I'm pushing the notion that four and up are where we want to be. Well, um, I think I think five and up. But okay, I'm but, good with that. I'm good with but, that. Let's go five and up. But, but now you're promoting a book that gives people an excuse no, to not do the right thing. No, no, no. There's like about 28 times in the book that I say, do not do smile sheets alone. Okay. Alone. 
But people are going to do them anyway. And what they've been doing is getting bad information. And that's been pushing them to make bad decisions. But you're and pushing them to, I, to focus on this. I'll give you an example. So oftentimes I get called in uh, by a chief learning officer, head of training, head of design. And these people know, or they have some suspicion that their training designs that people are in their organization are using are not good enough. And they, they come in and they have me do like a learning audit and or a learning audit workshop. And basically, uh, you know, we begin to send messages that, you know, the designs aren't good enough and we're persuasive and everything. We got great stuff, but the trainers, the subject matter experts come back and say, well, you know, I don't really, you know, this was great stuff, but you know, overall, I don't really understand why we need it. I mean, our smile sheet results are like at 4.6 and then you have complete paralysis. So we're going to use uh, learner surveys anyway. So why not make them good? Let's send some good messages. Let's get better data, um, data that's better than we've done before. So yeah, we should do better than that, but as, as a starting point. And a lot of organizations, you know, they, they got to start somewhere. So this at least gets them thinking. All right, you sold me. <laughs> But I'm still not doing them. I'm going to go from level five. Okay. Well, you do that. Then. <laughs> you know, there is, you know, there is, um, and I, I, I didn't want to admit this till like the last couple of years, but there is a tendency for our organizations, our learning teams to want to gather data that proves that they're doing well. There's also, we as trainers, we want, you know, we, we sort of, it, it makes, it's uncomfortable when we get feedback that's not acceptable to us. We're not doing as well as we thought. It's painful. You know, some of us take it really personally. Um, and I, and I, I can tell stories about <laughs> people saying, okay, I quit. I'm not going to be a trainer. Um, but, and a lot of them should not be. Well, but a lot of them should like say, okay, well, great. You know, I'm starting out. I should, I can get better. What can I learn? Um, so anyway, uh, my, my point is that there's a natural tendency to want to get data that confirms that we are doing a good job. And uh, that's problematic. We have to fight that. We have to fight that. All right. All right. I'm with you on that. So on that note, you ready to move to best in the worst? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you want me to go first? <laughs> I, I'm actually, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm not ready, but I'll go, I'll give us something to try. All right. All right. So my best of the week is you actually, <laughs> you wrote a stellar blog post on the politics of L and D. And I don't mean the politics like office politics. I'm talking about the underlying political paradigms, the underlying political philosophic uh, drive for many corporations and therefore the L&D groups to perpetuate uh, a philosophy that undermines well-being, that undermines our community, that undermines the ability for people to make a living um, and you provided a history in your article uh, 
stepping back to the economist, Milton Friedman. And um, I thought it was not only refreshing, but frankly, brilliant. And I thought it was inspiring. I found that to be the best of the week. Oh, thank you. So, and I was still shocked that only one person tried to kill you. As we're still talking, but <laughs> I think it was—I think it was more than one. But <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I—I I loved it and um, uh, was very. Uh, it took a lot of courage, I think, to put it out, um, and put it out with quality. I mean, it was a well-written piece, so and thoughtful. So, well, it was. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time and not writing about it. Um, and not really knowing how to put it into words. And then uh, this week was the 50th, this week or this month was the 50th anniversary of an article that Milton Friedman wrote, which had a lot of influence on our uh, politics of thought, politics of the you know, economic thinking uh, that seeped into the boardrooms across the country, that seeped into our language, uh, something I taught, which was, you know, that the prime goal of the organization is to increase shareholder value. <laughs> I used to teach that back in the Me 90s. Me too. Me yeah. too. And uh, cash is king. Yeah. Remember even, cash is king. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And even um, you know the the business roundtable, which is a group of CEOs, came out last summer and said, "Well, we're rethinking this. You know, we don't think that organizations should have a single stakeholder." That they think about it shouldn't be just about making money it shouldn't be just about the shareholders it shouldn't just be about the profits and some of what we have been taught in l d is that's what we're focused on business results at level four you you look at a lot of the graphics out there it doesn't say results like uh donald kirkpatrick originally wrote, wrote it it says business results so uh, we've narrowed that down too much uh, which really comes back to Roger Coffin was saying that all along. And uh, I've done a little to put that into LTEM tier eight to say, hey, we have different stakeholders, different purposes. Well, anyway, to me, that was the best. Thank the you. worst, however, is uh, there's this, well, I don't know how much it's prevalent in the US, but in France and parts of Belgium, there's this large following of people who are calling themselves collective intelligence facilitators or our learning and development programs are founded in the collective intelligence or we are strong proponents of fostering the collective intelligence. Now, the collective intelligence, it comes out of uh, sociobiology, sociology, it comes out of computer science, it, it looks at you, uh, the collective collaborative approach, approaches of many people, uh, either with intent or without intent, uh, that then gets analyzed to form some kind of consensual decision. That's the official definition. Now, you can see lots of examples in our society where the collective intelligence has functioned interestingly well. Uh, the Google algorithm for search is an outcome of the collective intelligence. Wikipedia is an example of the collective intelligence working. So we see it working. We also see it failing many ways in politics, for example, 
for example, we have Trump. <laughs> Trump is there you an go. outcome You're losing of the collective <laughs> intelligence. Um, the failure of people to adhere to proper COVID uh, procedures in terms of mitigating COVID exposure is an outcome of the collective intelligence. Um, there are, there's a lot of research on the collective intelligence. And a lot of that research has shown that if you take a group of very smart individuals, put them in the room together and form a team and have them solve problems or brainstorm, you get better outcomes. The, the problem is that if you take a group of dumb individuals, put them into a room together, form a team, you tend to get either mediocre or bad outcomes. And so the people, just because they form a group, do not yield better results. Um, and then other research is showing other problems, such as a failure to be able to replicate the same outcomes. Uh, well, and it, it, there's some, you know, there's probably some things that groups are better at than individuals. Yeah. Even if you have the smartest people in the world, sometimes working alone is going to get you a better outcome than have people together. You know, the... the Especially under time constraints. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the old, uh, there's research going back to the 90s that shows that uh, brainstorming as individuals uh, creates better creativity than brainstorming as a group. So, you know, there's some things that don't work that well. That's right. And uh, so the worst to me now is the co-opting of this title of the collective intelligence facilitator from a group of people who are probably ill-trained in the field of collective intelligence, who have no experience in computer science or paired programming or uh, in sociobiological theorems, uh, who don't understand what it's about or how to make it work. What they're doing is they're using training, uh, team building techniques and training activities that um, uh, probably failed to generate good results decades ago, but they're now putting the term collective intelligence uh, on top of that. Um, so I find this new fad to, to be very troubling and uninspiring. And I name that as the worst of the week. Collective intelligence. Well, I think I'd like to know what our, uh, our listeners think of that. Mm hmm and I think we should do an entire episode on it and pull in some of these collective intelligence facilitators. Yeah, <laughs> and grill them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I was thinking more along the lines of, you know, we'll get the collective intelligence of our listeners to give us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All two of you. See where I'm going here? Yeah, I do. But I, frankly, I think this would fall under Clark Quinn's. It's a misconception rather than a myth because we do know that in certain cases, the, the group can generate better outcomes, but there are just as many cases where it doesn't. So there's a misapplication of the concept, a misunderstanding of the concept. Yeah, yeah. And this goes back to the wisdom of the crowds yeah. stuff. Hold on. Wait, there was the same idea that existed under a different nomenclature? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. wow. wow. Well, they had, they okay. had a whole bunch of people uh, try to figure out how many jelly beans were in a container <laughs> and always the group did better than the individuals. So somehow, somehow you took that piece of information and said that the 
people are smarter together. Maybe they're just hungry. You know, I heard about this guy that uh, here in New England, he ate, um, he ate like two bags of black licorice and it killed him. Yeah. <laughs> Because apparently licorice it's bad. is a, it's bad for you. It's in, bad in for you. It's poison. It's poison. Licorice is a poison. <laughs> this is a, this is the you know if you don't if you remember nothing else from this episode of Truth and Learning, know that don't eat too much. Black don't eat licorice. a lot of licorice. Uh, or or don't you know this is why I don't think we should have democracy. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> this is why we should not allow voting. Should get rid of voting entirely and let a computer pick our presidents well, and I, our senators. I, you know, so like if there's a local vote going on here in town, yeah, and I don't really know who the participants are, I ask somebody who I know who pays more attention than me, who who I believe in their values, and I tell you, I ask them, who do you think is better, and then I you know, and I ask why, and then I vote accordingly. Um, I think there's, yeah, I mean. I don't think we should prevent voting, but maybe we should say, hey, if you don't know, don't vote. Well, you know, I, I know there are issues logistically with this and there's some privilege issues too, like people having access or being able to read and stuff or, but there are ways to, to mitigate those, those issues. But I frankly think if you want to vote, you should be able to pass a test. You should oh, pass a test on. on the issues. Oh, a test on the issues. Yeah. Who's going to create the test, though? I haven't solved that problem yet. There are definitely <laughs> issues with my my theory, but but why should you be able to vote on my health care if you don't understand the factors? That nobody understands health care. I just been okay, but this. but there shouldn't you be able to understand enough that I mean the people that I think was it Alabama or Tennessee or Missouri, one of them. The NPR did a bunch of interviews with people who, who, uh, in 2018, whatever you do, don't vote for this guy because he's going to take away my ACA. I need my ACA, but at least they're going to get rid of Obamacare. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think you should at least be able to pass a test that knows that the ACA is Obamacare. Yeah, yeah. That should be, a, you know, there should be certain requirements. You should know that if you uh, vote for this guy, this guy has said over and over again that this is, he, he's in favor of X and X yields Y. And if you like Y, great, you should vote for him. But you better understand that. Yeah. And there are too many cases where people are voting without understanding the consequences yeah. of that. Well, I mean, this, yeah. And this goes back to our educational system here in the United States and how the textbooks are biased and that's political football. Exactly. And I don't know how to solve these problems. All I know is that we have a large, large group of people on both sides of the aisle who vote ignorantly. Every, well, but who's, who are you going to have vote? I mean, really, I don't know. It's just, I don't know the answer to this, but I don't have an answer. Yeah. yeah. But, but I can't believe we want people to get out and vote. I don't want my neighbor voting. I've met him. <laughs> this guy should not be allowed to vote. <laughs> What's his name? That's <laughs> not <I'm> stupid. <laughs> All right. So um, you haven't uh, done yours. I haven't done mine. So um, you know the best of the week. Um, well, Ruth. Bader Ginsburg died this week. 
and that's not uh, a good thing will no it's not a good thing a okay. terrible thing um and the political football after that was even worse but um uh so another reason why people should not be allowed to vote is we're in this situation <laughs> yeah i did see some really good calls to have uh you know 18 year term limits for the supreme court that's not or court packing but that's a different podcast <laughs> yeah. uh, this podcast cannot save america um so uh <laughs> that's funny <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my best of the week is my wife said hey you know there's a uh there's a little memorial to ruth bader ginsburg over at the harvard uh law library why don't we go over someday at lunch we'll ride our bikes over we'll go there and i was like oh yeah okay let's do that and and you know i wasn't thinking much of it and uh so we rode rode there and um, there weren't that many people there because this is like a, the day after, a couple of days after. And, uh, but everybody left these little sticky notes or pictures or uh, poster board with comments. And I had to say I was completely overwhelmed with emotion, really touching what people said. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a kind of, you know, you know there's, there's learning cognitive stuff. And then there's learning that touches you um, emotionally, or there's emotions that touch you in a way that makes you learn something at a deeper level. And, uh, I was really just, uh, really, you know, my wife had to drive me out of there. She goes, come on, we got to go. <laughs> no, I got to stay. <laughs> so. It, she, uh, is one of those people that, uh, I could listen to for days and days on end. She's just brilliant and profound and elegant and yeah yeah and no, uh, she's amazing yeah. she led 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 a good life uh you know she worked tirelessly unbelievably tirelessly to help others and, and i've uh, always had a horribly negative view of scalia antonin scalia <laughs> did you know that they were uh, close friends close friends they would go to the opera together and um they for two people who were literally opposed to everything in the world from a values and philosophical standpoint, they modeled how two people who are opposed to everything the other stands for can behave. Um, although yeah. I'm not sure he behaved well with everyone else in the world, but that's a different problem. Um, but uh, she was a, a, a miraculous human being. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of feel like that should be your worst too. Yeah. I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah. She was the best. She was the worst to die. Yeah, let me, let me rephrase that. <laughs> yeah. It was <laughs> so anyway, and on that happy note, we, we lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Roger Kaufman and uh, wow. Who's yeah. next? Well, the, <laughs> Oh, that's morbid. <laughs> well, things go in threes. <laughs> Should oh, we start man. a pool? <laughs> Fifty dollars. Put in a name. Give us a name. Hey, you know, I, I have an idea for our new group. Okay, for um, LDA. Yeah, yeah. Just I'll throw it out here. You can. I know, you, but you, I want you, you to use the name. LDA. You can edit it out. Uh, Learning Development Accelerator. Um, we are learning designers. 
one of the big issues in our country right now um, and in the world is that people are not wearing masks. We know the science tells us that masks are one of the best things we can do, but people aren't wearing them. Um, you know, even people that believe in them aren't wearing them all the time, et cetera. Uh, what skills do we have as learning designers to create uh, some persuasive message or interaction? And I was thinking maybe we could have a little um, friendly contest, uh, a call out to people could be one of the first things we do with LDA. What do you think of that? I think that's great. So when we make the announcement, our next post should be, here's our first LDA activity. Great. And on that note, folks, you probably can pick up our politics, our political slant, uh, but we're okay with that. And uh, we will see you soon. Take care. Bye, everybody. <laughs>